0: What a blessing to to be with you, and um, it's amazing to see how Philip and Yaneta, just through the grace of God, also upon their lives here, and the leaders and the elders here, have really taken this congregation next level to a a place of intimacy and a a passion for the Lord and a passion for the lost, together with Yaku and Erna and all the other leaders here. I just want to honor you guys. Thank you for all your hard work in putting this conference together as well. Can we just give them a hand, together, all the volunteers, the amazing people. The sound team, all the other volunteers, the decor, the kids' church, guys, you guys have done an incredible, incredible job, and it is amazing to, to be here. It's also fantastic to, to know that we've got friends from many other congregations also streaming in, guys, so we want to uh, welcome you as well and thank you for your time. We're excited for what God is going to do in our midst. As we, as we gather, there's a miracle that happens. We thank God for technology. It makes it possible for us to uh, to be able to be bonded and to be connected with one another, um, and to be able to share in what, what God does in our in our lives. Uh, I always think to myself, I wonder what Paul would have done if he had access to all of the stuff that we've got access to, eh? with all the material, the internet, and all of those things. Uh, I think it would just rock this world. So, uh, so we're a privileged generation. I mean, to 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 be alive. At a time such as this, uh, there are many challenges that lie and, and wait for us, but there are many opportunities that wait for us as well. And God has brought us forth for a time such as this. There's a reason why we are alive in 2019. There's a reason why you are in the town that you are in, why you are in the country that you are in. There's a reason why you are the reason. There's a reason why you are the race that you are. There's a reason why you have the color hair, that you have some battle with the Lord around that. I know you change the color from time to time. That's between you and God. That's okay. That's the reason why you have as many hair as you do or as less hair, fewer hair as you do. Um, I won't look at a specific friend of mine right now, but it is incredible to, to be with you. <laughs> yes, hallelujah. Let me pray for us before I lose the plot. Father, thank you so much, God, that you are Good God, we thank you for the joy of the Lord in this house. We thank you, Lord, that where you are and where your spirit is, Lord, there is freedom. And God, that you have already begun to work in our lives and, and you will continue to work this, this morning. Holy Spirit, Lord, we are so thankful for you. We are so thankful that you have honored Jesus' sacrifice and the blood of Jesus and that Today, you don't dwell in a temple made by human hands, but you have chosen to live inside of us, and that you are not intimidated by our sin and by our, our humanity, but that you come to, to make the Father's heart a reality in our lives, Lord. Thank you that you are the great translator. I thank you that this morning that you will translate, Lord, between my words and the ears of your people's hearts. Translate, Lord. Remove, add whatever you need to, so that this morning they can only hear what you want them to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take you this morning to a, a portion of Scripture, and I want to share with you a, a few thoughts uh, around the sound of the harvest still. Yesterday we, we spent some time, for those of you guys who weren't with us, just talking about uh, God's desire for us as his people to dream. Uh, that one of the first signs that Peter spoke about when the Holy Spirit came was that there was a promise for God's people that when the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, one of the signs of the Holy Spirit being amongst us was that we would have the ability to dream. We would have the ability to look at circumstances, at things around us, and to see another picture, a different picture besides the reality around us, besides what we see in the newspaper or we read on the internet, or what we see with our physical eyes around us as we drive through our different towns and cities, as we drive through our nation. We are confronted with many things that we see with our natural eyes. But God has always been looking for a people that will not be defined by what we see through their natural eyes only. But He's always been looking for a people and working through a people who have the capacity to imagine, to dream, and I think that's one of the greatest gifts that God has given humanity even is that we have the ability to imagine things, the ability to even reimagine things. And there's this beautiful scripture in the Word of God that says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that we can ask for or imagine. So the implication of that is that you have to ask. God is able to do above and beyond what you can ask. But if you don't ask, and you don't receive. Amen. So some of you this morning even, you just need to stir your boldness again to ask God for things. And he says he's able to do beyond what you can ask or imagine. And I think sometimes the devil comes in and he lies to us and he says to us that Christians can't be creative and imaginative. And we're supposed to be the most creative and the most imaginative people, aren't we? Because God imagined the universe, saw it, dreamt about it, and then created it. God imagined you. Before he created the universe, he imagined you and me, planned us, dreamt about us, and then brought us into into this world. You are a dream fulfilled. Did you know that? You are God's dream fulfilled. God was dreaming about you, and then he created the universe so that that dream can come to pass. He was dreaming about a bride for his son, and you are the dream fulfilled. And, And as we go through this journey on earth, We are confronted very often with broken dreams, messed up dreams, destroyed dreams, devastated dreams. And God wants to rekindle our hearts to dream again. And so yesterday we spoke about some past years of the faith. And I want to continue that journey this morning and take us to 2 Timothy 1 verse 1 to 2. And Timothy is known in Scripture as Paul's son in the faith. Uh, Paul refers to Timothy very often as my dear son in the faith. He meant Timothy discipled him, equipped him, raised him up, entrusted many congregations into his care. But his journey with was fascinating. His journey with Timothy didn't start with Timothy coming to faith under Paul's ministry. But there was a foundation that was laid even before Paul arrived in Timothy's life. And for us as a shofar church family, I would like us to to remember this. As we start engaging with the harvest out there, we are still privileged enough to live in a nation, in spite of what our statistics say and and the crime and all of those things, that we do still have a God conscience in our nation. We do still have an understanding of some basic biblical elements, truths around scripture for, for most people in our country. There are quite a few people that don't have the frame of reference. But in general, when we talk about South Africans, if you speak to a South African, your average South African, you talk about Moses, you talk about Noah, you talk about Jesus, there is a frame of reference. I mean, It's not the case in Europe anymore. We were in Shofar Utrecht a couple of weeks ago, ministering there. with The guys from Shofar Yuka and Ytrecht came together. And it was incredible just to, to fellowship together, Hercules, one of our apostolic team members, um, and he's pastoring now in Shofar. Wimbledon, uh, he cycled through with two other guys from Wimbledon. They cycled to, to Amsterdam, just praying for Europe. And Everywhere they cycled, they prayed. Different cities, they stopped and they prayed. Uh, and he's planning to do a cycle tour uh, around the UK and into Ireland sometime as well. So, and he, he said, I must extend the invitation to any person crazy enough to join him. Uh, you are welcome to, to do that, to do a prayer cycle through the UK, to reclaim that nation for the Lord Jesus. Um, but we were ministering to people there, and there were probably it was a group of 50, in that group of 50, about 20 different nationalities. And, and some people know a little bit about Scripture, but most of them come from a background where they got no idea, absolutely no idea, as to the things that we take for granted. And amongst other things, some of the things that many South Africans find difficult, they are things we take for granted. Like, for instance, being able to go to a school, like many of us went to schools, where you have sports. And then afterwards, everybody comes together. You go to a rugby match. You go to a cricket match. And all the parents are there, and they're enjoying just that fellowship. That's not there. All those sports mostly take place outside of school. And, and so there's a lot of things we take for granted here that you don't have in, in many of those countries. That's, that's sort of the promised land for many people right now. I came back so appreciative again of what God has given us. And I want you to to think about this a little bit as we are going to engage with the harvest out there. God is going to bring us the harvest. God is going to send us more and more people because God gave us this promise over the weekend. And he said that he has positioned our hearts to be harvesters. That God is going to send us people. He's going to connect us with people. We're going to love people, reach out to them, lead them to, to the Lord, disciple them more and more. But I want you to understand that when we start engaging with people, we are not going to be the beginning of the story in their lives. We are not going to be the author and the finisher of their story. There would have been a journey already. There would have been engagement. There would have been a legacy. There would have been a tradition, some good, some bad. But in general, for us in South Africa, there is a legacy. And I'm wanting to stir our hearts a little bit around That legacy. And so my sermon this morning is titled, An Intergenerational Sound. So I believe the sound of the harvest that God is taking us into needs to be and will be an intergenerational sound. Even as it is going to be an interracial sound, an intercultural sound, it needs to be an intergenerational sound. And there's a great challenge in the church today for generations to be separated from one another for the, the next generation always to think that, that what we are experiencing is new, brand new, never existed before. This revelation is the most amazing. It's never existed before. And we pity previous generations. And I want us just to, to enter into this time, into the season that God is taking us into with a healthy dose of humility. We had a friend, by the way, a couple of years ago, when I was here in Pretoria, he flew for the Air Force from time to time, he would fly over this, uh, this place just for fun. <laughs> it says he's sending out a, a shout out to the shofar. Uh, so Solomon, if you're listening to this, you are there in China, brother. Uh, we love you. So Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice. And now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. And then verse two, for this reason, I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And we've been speaking a lot about verse 2. We've been encouraging one another to dream, to prophesy, to go out and to do what God has called you to do because there's a gift inside of you. There's something supernatural that lives inside of you. There are giftings there, spiritual gifts, natural gifts, abilities to, to write Amazing pieces of poetry, of journalism, or build majestic structures that can be built and established to the glory of God. That God has put inside of you everything that our country needs. He has put inside of this room and the rooms of other people listening to me and in the rest of the body of Christ, every gift that our country needs resides within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every need that our country needs and the country is represented by you guys listening to my voice. God has placed the provision for those needs in us. Why? Because Christ lives in us. And Christ is the answer to every need that we are being faced with today. And he has chosen to put all of that provision through his Holy Spirit. He has chosen to put it inside of flesh and bone. Men and women, Here is an answer to our country's needs. Here is an answer to our country's needs. As we are in this room, if you are looking around to God, where will our help come from? Where will our deliverance come from? It comes from the Lord, but the Lord has chosen to invest that inside of human beings. And so the church is the answer. God hasn't changed his mind yet. The church is the answer. Not the buildings, not our denominations, not our vision statements. None of those things. They add value. But the church flesh and bone and dwelled by the Holy Spirit is the answer. And so we are encouraging each other to say, fan the gift into flame. Stir it up. And so a weekend like this converging together is basically us saying to one another, fan the gift into flame. That prophecy God gave you, that degree that you got, that experience that you went through, bring it to God and say, God, use this to your glory. And if you don't know that God has called you, then respond. Come so we can lay our hands on you and we can trust God to ignite something in you that can set you ablaze for his glory. So you can be a teacher that is on fire for God. So you can be a journalist that's on fire for God, a physiotherapist, a a doctor, whatever the case might be, that is on fire for God. Fan the gift into flame. And so God has called us to serve the rest of our country with this ability, with this, this, this gifting that he has given us to encourage people to live not for themselves, but to allow the gifts of God to flow through them. You are the only bottleneck to that gift. You are the only one that decides whether you're gonna shut up that gift, whether you're gonna allow the gift to flow. Nobody else can do that. The government can't shut up that gift. Your dad can't shut it up. Your spouse can't shut it up. Your your baby that doesn't wanna sleep through the night can't shut it up. You are the only one that can shut up that gift or release that gift. And my encouragement to us is to release that gift. Release it, fan it into flame. But here's the other truth. As much as we can encourage you to do that, the truth is that for most of you that, that are in this room and that we are engaging with, it is the truth that there is some sort of foundation in your life. That either in your grandparents' life or your parents' life, your great-grandparents' great life, there's an element of godliness in there somewhere. There's a seed of godliness in there somewhere. Somewhere in your bloodline, someone served the Lord God. Someone serve the Lord God. And we as the people of God, as Shofar Christian Church, we are privileged to live in a nation where we can gather like this. Where this morning we don't have to hide. This morning we, we could put on Facebook, we could market where we are. We don't have to come together in little groups afraid of we'll be bombed to smithereens like like many parts of the rest of the body of Christ. says, we walk out of this room, we don't have to fear walking into the secret police they will drag us off to prison. That is a privilege. And it is a privilege because there is still godliness in our nation. I know it's being challenged and I know that we don't always see it, but I want you to hear me. There is still godliness in our nation. I don't care what the politicians say. I don't care what the media says. There is still godliness in this nation. And my heart is, as we go into the new season that God has for us, and as He has promised us that He's bringing us the harvest, that we will walk humbly, understanding we are simply a link in the chain. We are building upon foundations which previous generations established for us. So I'm a blessed man. I love what I'm doing. I'm privileged to serve this church family in this capacity. But I know that I'm not defined by this position. I know that a few years from now, somebody, I will lead this church family. My desire is simply to lay a foundation for that next generation, the next group of leaders that have to come after me. But I know that I'm not defined by this. And one of the reasons why I know this is because I come from a legacy of godly parents. My dad was an Enchia Church, Duermany, for many years. Taught me how to love the Word of God. Taught me how to love God's people. And he went through many tribulations within the church, um, got baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit, made the front news, uh, front paper of the, um, how do you say that? Front page of the newspaper, <laughs> page and paper, again, all confused. Front page of the, the burger, do, do a pastor, gets himself baptized. Right? It was a big thing in the 70s if you did something like that. But he is my hero, my dad. It's like this, he's short. But I look up to him. All right, and one day when I'm big, <laughs> I pray that I would be half the man that he is because of his integrity, because of his character, because of his ability not to allow things around him to define him. Whether it was the National Party government, whether it was the ministers around him, he never allowed any bitterness to creep into his heart and never transferred any of that bitterness to us. But one word of negativity towards the government of the day, he had enough reason to be negative. Back then, the way that he grew up and what was done to him. Not one word of negativity towards the Senate of the the other ministers around him that ostracized him and gave him such a tough time. And that is my legacy that I come from. And I am who I am, not because I'm so amazing, but because of my dad. And I understand that I've received a great responsibility that I have to steward. I've been given much, so much will be required of me. And I can't take anything for granted. I can't lay claim to any of the blessings, not because of who I am. Virtually almost all the blessings I have is because of my mom and my dad. And I want to, I want to, I want to say to us, I believe that the blessing that God has for Shofar is going to come into its fullness as we honor the previous generations. As we honor the Lewis and the Eunice and every else played a role in your life. Psalm 44 verse 1 to 2. There's this amazing portion of scripture. It's, it's, it's um, a psalm written by the sons of Korah. I'll preach about this at Johannesburg tonight. It's incredible how God changed the legacy around. But they say, We have heard with our ears, Oh God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days. This is incredible. If you read the rest of the psalm, you'll find out that in the middle of the psalm, they're crying out to God, saying, God, we don't see revival. We don't see your life. We don't see truth around us. But he starts off by saying the reason why we're frustrated with our circumstances, the reason why we look at our circumstances and we say there must be more, is because we have heard with our ears, God, our fathers have told us the great deeds which you have done in their days. And that gives us a frame of reference, that gives us an expectation, that gives us something inside of us. It says there must be more to what we are experiencing now because our fathers told us miracle stories. We've heard with our ears, oh God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days in days of old You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own arm. Neither did their own sword save them, but it was your hand, your right arm, your sword, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. And so there's an expectation within that generation of believers within Israel that, God, we are overwhelmed. God, we are outnumbered. But, God, there was a time in our history when you did miracles. And we know about these miracles because our fathers told us. There was a time when we entered a land and we were outnumbered and outstripped. And God drove out the nations before us, not because we were amazing, but because it was his hand his right arm and the light of his countenance. It was all about him. He did it. We were messed up. We were clueless. He did it. Can there be a generation of older people again that can tell the generation to come stories? That instead of just moaning and complaining and going with all the negativity, can tell them of a time when God intervened? And God made a difference. Can there be a generation that can stir faith in those to come? It's a dangerous thing to stir faith because you create frustration with that as well. But sometimes the only way you can get into breakthrough is to be frustrated enough with your status quo so you push into God so that God can change the status quo. There was a time when God did miracle foundation. One of the Kids in our congregation did a history uh, assignment the other day around 1994. And so you had to look for someone above 14 who voted during that time. And found me and gave me a whole list of questions about so where were you when you voted? Why did you vote? Uh, what do you remember of the time? And all of those things. First time voted. I remember 1994. I remember the buildup, the thousands of people who died in KwaZulu-Natal. In the hostels between the ANC and the Inkata Freedom Party. Remember our security police, all the stuff that went with it. I remember how people stockpiled lots of blicky scores, bully beef, and a lot of stuff. Because we feared the civil war. It was a very real danger. It was real. And we had a miracle day. And God intervened in our nation and And we are many years late, and we're in a crisis again. But you know what? We have to remind ourselves that when God's people pray, God heard, and he answered. And as we're sitting here today, what we have here is a miracle. Because there was a time when church was segregated and separated, and Sunday was the most segregated time in our nation. Could still be in some cases. But what we have here is miraculous, where we can come together brothers and sisters from different nations and different tribes and different languages and we are able to worship God together because God intervened. We can have conversations with one another around culture and our backgrounds and our stories and we can get to find one another around the blood of Jesus. One day... There will be a generation that will stand and will look back at this generation. My heart's cry. is that we who are alive today will be a generation that will be able to tell the generation to come about things that God is doing in our time. That there will be a generation that will look back at us and will be able to say when they are faced with their Frustrations because each age has its own frustrations. Each age has its own challenges. There's never a time, never an age, where there are no challenges. But the generation to come would be able to look back at us, our life now, and would be able to say, we have heard with our ears, our fathers told us when God moved mightily in their midst. I pray we would be that generation. Yesterday, I spoke about George Muller, a man who did an awesome work amongst the orphans in Britain. I want to finish with his story because his story has a link to our story in South Africa. So George Muller looked after more than 10,000 orphans at four or five orphan homes. He received more than £13 million in his lifetime without asking anybody for a cent. Never asked anybody for any money. Lived by faith. He made an account of every cent that was given The records are still available. Everyone that gave received the receipt. And he asked them, please keep this receipt because next year we want to give you a report as to how we use the money. And I want you to make sure that this, what you have given us, it's reflected in our accounts for next year. Every cent of the 13 million pounds in today's terms that he received. Live by faith. And he was a brilliant steward. The two don't have to be in opposition to one another. Amen. You don't have to be a brilliant steward and be faithless. (laughs) You don't have to be a man of faith and be a terrible steward. It can be the same. It needs to be the same. So yesterday I spoke about the wrestle, how George Muller wrestled with God concerning these dreams, how he was willing to let go of dreams because he was desperate to live only for the glory of God. And one of his um, journal entries towards the end is, he's dreaming and praying, thinking through, should I start another orphanage? He comes to the conclusion, he says, I have therefore judged myself bound to be the servant of the church of Christ. In the particular point in which I obtained mercy, namely in being able to take God at his word and rely upon it. Our nation needs people who will once again have this mercy upon them to take God at his word. Not just to say amen in a church service. To take God at His Word and then to rely upon it. It's one thing taking God at His Word, agreeing in your head, as Rick Russo shared with us yesterday. But for that Word to travel from year to year, it's a long journey. You've got to wrestle with God. God, is your Word in my heart? Is your Word reflected in how I live? Or is your Word a Sunday story, a Tuesday Bible school story? Wednesday small group story, or is it in my heart? Is it in my mouth? Is it living and breathing through me? And it says that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care, and I love what my cousin and brother and the rest of the amazing team are doing in Live Village, where they have hundreds of orphans that they're looking after. Such an incredible faith story that's taking place there as well. So under my care, are provided with all they need, only by prayer and faith. Without anyone being asked. Thereby it will be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. May this be our legacy to the generations to come. That God is faithful still and hears prayer still. So, in a very real sense, as, as we are contending for our faith, because I don't know whether you realize this, but there's a contention for our faith. There's an only we will not make our faith. So it requires us not just to be passive, church, This we will not make it through this time if we are passive around what we are confronted with. It's not just a newspaper article that some journalist is writing. It's a bombardment against your faith. And if you keep on just reading the newspaper and allowing the newspaper to shape your expectation, you will lose your faith. You will have to have the word In you, reading the word, meditating upon the word, speaking to one another about the word. Have the newspaper there, but bring the word of God to that newspaper. And say, God, we are trusting you to change the situation. God, we are trusting you to change the situation through us, God. Can we be your agents of reconciliation? Can we be your leaders of integrity? Can we be your businessmen that will release kingdom finances? Can we be the difference through the power of the word? So there are stories here. So if we talk about dreaming again, daring to dream, fanning the flame inside of you, fanning that gift into flame, I want to say to you, you are not just contending for your faith. You are contending for the faith of the generations to come. Please hear me. You are not just fighting for your own faith. You're not just stewarding your own faith. You are stewarding and fighting for the faith of the generations to come. I've got faith in my heart that God can rise above any spirit of antagonism and bitterness and prejudice and hatred. Why? Because I saw that faith in my dad. I saw that it's possible to turn the other cheek when you're prejudiced against and, and there's racial hatred against you. I saw there's something supernatural inside of you that can stand up. So I know I don't have to be defined by people's opinions and, and prejudices. I can love in spite of hatred. Because I saw that modeled. But my dad had to fight for that. It wasn't easy. He had to fight for that. I've got faith in my heart that God can take a generation or a bloodline of alcoholics and sexually broken people and bring godliness out of it. Because I saw it in my dad's life. Son of an alcoholic of an alcoholic of an alcoholic because of the DOP system which we had in the Cape. The people were paid with alcohol. But the gospel invaded his life, transformed his life, and he made a commitment to God. At the age of 11, I will never allow a drop of alcohol to cross my lips because of the sake of my sons. My brothers and I can have wholesome families and love God and grow up in a home and love our wives and not beat them to a pulp because we are so addicted we don't know what we're doing. I've got faith that that can happen in families because I saw it in my dad. But he had to fight for it. It's now easier for me. But he had to fight for it. What are you fighting for? Because somewhere down the line, there's going to be a son, physical or spiritual, that needs to look back at someone who fought a battle for him. You're not just fighting for yourself. You're fighting for the legacy to come. And so for us, it's important to understand that when God says that there are great miracles coming and a great harvest coming, that there were great miracles and great harvests which God brought into our nation in the past. So I quickly want to try and continue to stir your faith. And we spoke about a few awakenings yesterday, and there was a fourth great awakening, 1857, and I, I want you, I'm going to tie the link now with George Muller and us. 1857, an awakening started in Canada. A small group of people, 21, and we more than 21 here. They got saved. They continued to pray and pray and pray and pray for God to bring revival. And then, slowly but surely, the Lord started adding people to their group so that on a daily basis, between 25 and 40 people started getting saved. That spilled over into America. And there were a few businessmen who heard about what's going on in in Canada. And they said, shall we grab lunch? But instead of eating, shall we pray? That God would change our business that he would purify our hearts, that we would be better husbands, and better fathers. And they just prayed and they repented and they cried out to God, God cleanse us, God use us, God purify us, God bless our families, bless our nation. And that small little lunch prayer meeting started with a few businessmen, grew into a mighty prayer movement. There's one stage, 10,000 men all across America during their lunch hours came together to pray for revival. And that's known as the New York Revival, September 1857. That started. That prayer, little meeting that grew in the prayer movement, led to a million souls getting saved in two years. February to June 1858, 50,000 people per week gave their lives to the Lord. Started by a few guys that said, let's grab lunch. But instead of having our lunch, let's feast on the Word Let's allow the word to change us, to confront us. And it grew. Salvation Army, Charles Spurgeon, a whole bunch of amazing people were impacted by that revival. I was in Burundi the other day. We met with Pastor Everest at this massive rock where Livingstone and Stanley met one another. That flame of revival of missionary work that impacted Africa came out of this revival. There was this man called Lord Shaftesbury in, in, um, in the UK. And I quickly want to read this for you because there's somebody here, you need to hear this. He was credited with changing the laws pertaining to mental sickness. Before his time, people were locked up into little, basically prison cells. Families didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were fed a little bit of food underneath the door. Their, their cells weren't cleaned for weeks. They lived like animals. The schooling system was atrocious. And this man, Lord Shaftesbury, came along and he transformed the laws concerning mental illness. Fought for it for 20 years, transformed the whole British system, gave dignity to people with mental illness. Educated the poor, laid down his life for children and for mentally ill people. But this is how his story started. His biographers say that says that Ashley grew up without any experience of parental love. I'm telling my story, and some of you might say, but that's not my story, Heinrich. It's amazing. That's your story. This Ashley Shaftesbury, had a terrible beginning. He saw little of his parents, and when duty or necessity compelled them to take notice of him, they were formal and frightening. The place where he went to school was so bad, he described it as wicked, filthy, And the treatment was starvation and cruelty. That was his beginning. No love at home, schooling, terrible. That's how he started. That is quite a backlog. Talk about being previously disadvantaged. No love at home, terrible schooling. And yet when he died, hundreds of people, thousands of people lined the roads to watch his casket come by because he had changed and impacted the UK in such a profound way. There was a seed sown into his life by a woman called Maria Mills. And if you were to Google Maria Mills, you won't find much on her. But I want to read this for you. This difficult childhood was softened by the affection he received from his housekeeper, Maria Mills and his sisters. Mills provided for Ashley a model of Christian love that would be the basis for much of his latest social activism, In philanthropic work. She told him Bible stories. And she taught him. To pray. In the midst of that. Pain. Devastation. There was a nanny. That prayed over this boy Ashley. Taught him to connect with Jesus. And he changed his entire society. One person. It's all that it takes to make a difference. One person saw something in a little boy and prayed for him and prayed over him and connected him to Christ. The connection with us. So, this revival that broke out in New York, there were a group of Dutch Reformed women in, in South Africa. Frustrated by the slow growth of the church, frustrated by the lack of authenticity and frustrated by the the racial tension and how so many of the believers had no love for their neighbor. And Andrew Murray started to do a study of George Muller's life. And a lot of the quotes that I read, yes, they come from a study which Andrew Murray made on George Muller. He said, there's a man that lived by faith. Can God do for us what he did for George Muller? And he wrote a little book on the power of prayer. And so very soon the Dutch Reformed Church here in South Africa will come together to decide on their future. Around the issue of homosexuality and where they will find themselves and whether all the churches will stay together. Some of them will break away or not. It's a big meeting that's taking place. We're going to pray for that meeting now. But in 1860 there was another meeting of the Dutch Reformed Churches that came together. They invited the Rhenish Missionary Organization, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, Methodists. And 374 ministers and lay people were taken by Oxwagon to this meeting. And the topic of the meeting was revival. 374 people came together in our nation and cried out for Revival. And God answered their prayer. Andrew Murray stood up, preached a sermon, prayed a prayer, said, Awaketh thou that sleepeth. And something started, the mighty move of God that has repercussions to this day. Part of the reason why we are the nation that we are is because of what happened. That meeting. It says, before that revival broke out, there was one domini in Kalfinia, a town in the Northern Cape. And said, for six years, he tried to get people to come to a prayer meeting. It couldn't even get one person to come. This revival broke out. They were having prayer meetings three times a day. The prayer meetings were characterized by this. Almost in none of those was the exception and the pastor was a driving force. Was the exception, the pastor was the one that was feeding this. It was starting from amongst the people. There was deep conviction of sin, so much so that people would, Cry out to God for hours, sometimes days, to save them, to deliver them from their sin. Because they saw their sin. It wasn't just a little prayer, Jesus come in my heart and Jesus come into my heart. It wasn't just a little prayer. They saw the full immensity of their sin. Heartfelt repentance. And then a glorious, beautiful deliverance from that sin. People would stay in the presence of God for hours. There would be supernatural healings without people laying hands on people. They would be getting healed as they are repenting towards God. And there was almost always followed by an incredible explosion of joy. As people would joyfully go from that place. Communities were transformed because of that. One minister in Montague. Anybody from Montague in Cape Town? Anybody know? No one? But one minister wrote, oh, sir, what can I write? During this time, the Lord is doing wonders here. The Spirit is among us. Prayer meetings every day and every night of the week. People who never prayed publicly are opening their mouth widely. Last Sunday, I asked those who are seeking God to come early to the church for prayer meetings. They came in large numbers very early. <laughs> Three o'clock in the morning. Full, eh? So off may another amazing woman, incredible man of God, said, Before the days of revival, the situation in our congregation was lamentable. Love of the world and sin, no earnestness or heartfelt desire for salvation. Sinning and idleness, that was the order of the day for most. But when the Lord started to move amongst us, how intense were the prayers for revival and the cries for mercy. There's a pointing of the finger everywhere around us. We're blaming this one and that one. The blacks are blaming the whites and the whites are blaming the blacks and the colors are blaming the whites and the blacks and it's just crazy. (laughs) We need to get back to repenting instead of blaming. Corporate prayer, he says, even behind bushes and rocks, on mountains and in ravines, men, women, the elderly, children... Gentlemen, servants, all kneeling on the same ground, crying for mercy. And none of this was expected by anyone, nor prepared by anyone, nor worked up or preached by anyone. It was all the Spirit of God, and not for a few hours or days, but months long. Communities were transformed. They said the prisons were emptied. It spread to Prince Albert in Beaufort West, and a whole bunch of towns. Families were restored. Mission giving exploded. He said that during that time, South African Christians gave more per person than any other nation of the world towards missions. As Shofar, we send out the most mission teams of all churches in South Africa. That is made possible by family and friends giving towards those mission teams. Do you agree? I think few of you raise your own funds except through asking other people to help you. There's still a legacy where we understand the power of mission came from this revival. Mission teams going into the rest of Africa and South Africa. Then there's this the foundation, and at one stage it says the Andrew Murray Sr. himself, he prayed for revival for 36 years. And then he goes into this one prayer meeting where there's this one colored girl that, that, that had a song, she started singing the song, and the anointing of God fell upon that whole group. People started repenting, crying out to God, who said there was no clouds in the sky. They heard a sound like thunder and the whole building. Soek. People were crying out to God. It went on for hours and hours. And so Andrew Murray Sr., the man was praying for revival. He goes into that chaotic meeting. He says, Stop! This is chaos. This isn't God. And then the guys had visited the revival in New York, they told him, No, this is God. And he says, I'm gonna stand back and allow God to do this. So let us not think we know how this will look like. We might be surprised. It's an amazing story I came across. Many of you know the Anglo Boer War. We all know it. The prison, prisoners of war from the Anglo Boer War were taken to five camps in Bermuda, St. Helena, Sri Lanka, India, and Egypt. And what happened there, that all of a sudden, simultaneous prayer meetings would start in those prison camps. That whilst they were transported there by, by ship, Whilst they were in prison, God was busy bringing reconciliation. There's one story of two two friends that had nothing to do with each other. And they were put in the same camp. And then they started engaging with one another. And the the doormen and they led them to forgive one another. And out of that prayer meeting, a revival grew. There's a massive revival called the the Wales Revival. They trace the origins of that revival back to what happened in the prison of war camps. Here's the crazy thing. After the war... 175 of those prisoners of war returned as full-time missionaries. I'm saying that to you so you can understand the context within which revival takes place. It is for many of us in this room, we think back on those memories, it's painful. But something happened out of that pain. There's one story of, of one of the, the prisoners standing up with tears in his eyes and he says, I remember I asked my, my, my servant Jacob, To go and fetch me water. He was shot on his way there. And I held him in my arms. And as he's dying he's saying. Master. You knew about the blood of Jesus. And not once did you tell me. But once did you tell me. And he shares this with the rest of the prisoners. And he's weeping. And the conviction of God comes upon them. And then within that prison of war camp. God starts doing something in the hearts of those men. And they come back. As missionaries that take the gospel to different parts of Africa. God can do impossible things in the midst of the deepest pain. In the 1940s, I don't have time to go through all of this. Bear with me if you're streaming in. There's this gentleman called Nicholas Bengu. He was called the Black Billy Graham by the Time magazine. He's a young man. He joined the Communist Party. Angry young man. The Spirit of God got hold of him. Gave his life to the Lord. Responded to the call of God. Started preaching. Within six weeks, a thousand people people responded to the gospel. He would minister and hundreds of people would get slain. They wouldn't be able to move. He would call in buses to come and collect the people, take them back home. The bus drivers would try to pick up these people. They would get slain in the Spirit and they would get saved. This would go on for weeks. Thieves, gangsters, murderers came to Christ. It became so bad that gangsters targeted him to kill him because the gangsters that were getting saved were turning in their weapons to the police, were turning in themselves. The Daily Dispatch reported, it's in the newspaper, it's verified that the police station had to ask the people to stop bringing stolen goods back to the police station because they didn't have space anymore for all of the stolen goods. Revival took place. Conviction of sin came upon people and they were transformed. And this is what he said. I experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. He speaks about his time at Bible school. Communist, angry young man. God gets hold of his heart. He goes to Bible school. I experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit as never before. It was there that I learned of the amazing grace of God and his love that surpasses all understanding. It was there that a passion for souls was born in my heart. Mr. Souter, our teacher, emphasized the need for messengers who would go at God's command without a salary. One day, he said, God wants a man. And I heard a still, small voice say, Nicholas, you are that man. And I said, God, I am that man. We are where we are because of men and women like this. From the Dumanists to the evangelists who laid a foundation for us, what will we do with the legacy they gave us? What will we do? I want the guys to play that video clip for me. It's a story from a movie called Lord of the Rings. There are these two cities under attack. One city, city of Gondor, under attack by forces of evil. Jair Tolkien wrote it. Read the book. It's better than the movie. But well, the movie is helpful. And the cities under attack. They are about to be destroyed. In the kingdom of Rohan, they were, they were allies of the one stage, But at one stage, Rohan needed help. The city of Gondor didn't respond. And then Gondor is in, 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 in dire straits. They're about to be overwhelmed by the forces of darkness. And then this happens. Muster the Rohirrim. Can we stand? I want us to shift our attention to our brothers In the Dutch Reformed Church. I prayed with a colleague in Summers of the West a few months ago in his prayer room and he was sharing with me the conflict in their hearts and the challenges that they are facing. And I want us this morning to think about if you have a legacy, any sort of spiritual foundation in your life whether it be Anglican, Dutch Reformed, Roman Catholic, Pentecostal, whatever it might be. I want you to thank God for that legacy. And I want you to repent. I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance now for our arrogance and our judgment towards other parts of the body of Christ, especially the Dutch Reformed Church. Because the beacons are lit. The body of Christ needs one another. Will we respond? Or will we be focused on our own kingdom? Will we walk in bitterness and judgment? Or will we be a generation that steps up and muster our strength on behalf of those who need it? Father, in the name of Jesus, In the precious name of your Son, the Lord of the harvest, the one who built his church, we come before you in humility and repentance. This morning, we acknowledge our sin of pride and arrogance before you. we ask that you would have mercy on us for thinking that we could go on without the rest of your church. Forgive us, Lord, for disdaining and dishonoring the foundations we have received through our words, but more so through our attitudes. Forgive us, Lord, every word of judgment, every word of anger many of us got hurt in some of those environments, Lord, but it's never an excuse to harbor and to nurture the resentment. We repent this morning. And Lord, when we look to the harvest, it is our prayer that you would stir the fan and fan the flame of revival in your entire body. We thank you the men and the women, Lord, who laid their lives down in our nation, fought the fight for us, so we can have the freedoms and the knowledge that we have today. And Lord, we pray for the Dutch Reformed Church. This incredibly important time, which they find themselves where they have to decide whether they're going to follow the Word of God. They have to decide whether they're going to follow your purposes. And we pray that you would revive them, God. We pray that you will do for them, Lord, what you have purposed in your heart. We pray, Lord, for the pain and the trauma of churches having to wonder about the future, having to wonder about the leadership. We pray for the leaders and we pray that you will give them wisdom. We pray that your spirit move upon them as you moved upon them in the past, O oh God. We pray for the remnant, Lord, that are calling out to you. We pray that you will answer their prayers. And we master our faith and I ask we make a few groups so where you are, two or three, and that you would pray. Pray for the rest of the body of Christ. Pray for whatever church the Lord lays on your heart right now. Repent, cleanse your heart. Bring bring it into the light if there's anything that you have hidden there. Pray. Pray if your life depends upon it. Pray. Call out to God. Cry out to Him to move. Let's turn to one another.